Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Welcome, everybody, to our podcast. Uh, we are excited, as always, to have our very next guest, Steve Capobianco. Uh, he is the medical director for Rock Tape. Uh, Steve, go ahead and introduce yourself and give the listeners a little background on you and your career and all the things you've done, sir. <laughs> so, uh, that's awesome intro. I like, I like how we get right into it. I um, <laughs> So, uh, first and foremost, I'm not the medical director. Uh, I have some new title now. It's uh, Director of uh, Medical Fitness Education. Um, those that don't know, uh, the company that I had the, the privilege of co-founding uh, in respect to Rock Tape about 10 years ago was purchased uh, a year and a half ago by a company called Implus out of North Carolina. So now uh, our parent company is Implus. They own a bunch of other companies in the, I guess, fitness, wellness, healthy living um, category. And in, under our division, we have Rock Tape, Trigger Point and Skills uh, products. So that's uh, that's under my umbrella when it comes to education, and that's what I've been doing for the last you know six or seven years. And you, uh, chiropractic background, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I should say that. Yeah, I'm a chiropractor with a rehab lens. Um, I practiced in NorCal. Uh, I think that's where I initially met you guys. For about 12, 13 years, I moved uh, to Denver, Colorado to open or build and open a facility called Project Move, uh, which is a, an amalgamation of a, uh, a medical clinic that incorporates physical therapy, chiropractic, massage with training. So we opened that in 2014, and I just recently moved to Austin, Texas. Um, now that Project Move is on its way. I moved to Texas uh, for an opportunity that my wife had. Um, she is stupid smart, uh, does things in the medical space that I would never be able to do. She's literally um, stimulating the spinal cord to help with chronic pain. So she got this opportunity, oh, wow. opportunity after she finished her PhD, and I just wouldn't let her turn it down. So we moved to Austin, and I've been here for about a year and a half. So that's my life story. In regards to, I know you've transitioned and one of your really strong points is discussing fascia, correct? All right. And, and All right. a lot of your research is in, the, in, in regards to what is fascia and, and how in its role and how we move. Uh, can you describe to the listeners in, in their simple terms of what is fascia? Because I think most people, even most trainers, don't have any concept of what it is. Most Trainers, most docs, um, don't don't be fooled. The whole idea of this network of tissue that's been around forever um, just is misunderstood. And, and in fact, I just finished a, a webinar with uh, Paul Hodges, which you're probably familiar with when it comes to the spinal stabilities, um, PhD, multiple PhD from uh, Australia. And uh, Paul was talking about this network of connective tissue and and some people will call it fascia, some people call it fascia, and, and it's just, it's confusing. And, and the, the point is, is that we're starting to learn so much more about this network of tissue, this basically bag that 
encompasses our body just underneath our skin is highly involved when it comes to the perception and action of movement. And so if I had to put fascia into um, an, a simple explanation, it's a dynamic network of tissue that basically encapsulates all of our muscles into little packages and it connects those muscles to muscles to help us distribute the force when we move our body. The, the old school um, model of thinking when it comes to how we move our body, if I could just show you flexing my huge pipes, the idea would be, the idea is that the biceps is, is creating that function because it attaches to the radius. And the new knowledge is that this bag that, that uh, encapsulates the biceps distributes that force along multiple different muscles to make it one fluid and two to dissipate the amount of stress on that muscle and its attachment. So it, it really starts to broaden our view of how we move our body by better understanding this network of tissue that some people call connective tissue, some people call fascia, but understanding it as a movement expert is critically important, I think, uh, to be able to better understand why we can or cannot, you know, perform a movement and why we might be experiencing pain and how do we improve our performance using knowledge of this of this system. So it's been something I've been diving deep into for the last 10 years, and it's definitely altered the lens that I look at movement by knowing this system better. So long-winded explanation of what I think it is and what the relevance is. No, it's perfect. That's uh, we we want to get that uh, your con your perception of what it is and, and why it's important. Is there a way that you think that we could make it easier for people in the fitness industry to understand how to start to incorporate that type of philosophy in their mm -hmm. training regimen? It's a good question and. Easy is, you know, relative, right? My job as an educator, and that's what I've been thrust into over the last, you know, six to 10 years is to kind of give people a, a different perspective using this new knowledge and giving them that perspective that they can apply. So it has to be actionable. Otherwise, it's just this, it's this inert packaging system like I talked about, and it really doesn't, it doesn't really have an effect. Um, so first and foremost, I think... The, the best suggestion that I could give your viewers and your followers is to, to kind of better understand how this fascial network connects the body uh, like a linkage system. And once you understand the relationship of these links of how the foot is mechanically and neurologically connected to the head, um, once you know that roadmap, then as a movement expert, I could use that understanding to change the way I intervene with them. So the example would be if I want to affect someone's cervical flexion extension and the tactics that I'm using here locally, all the stretching tactics, the myofascial tactics, the strengthening tactics, none of them are working locally. By better understanding this linkage system that I'm referring to, a la the fascial system, it'll give you insight of why it matters to, you know, intervene with someone's hip or someone's foot to be able to improve someone's 
range of motion or function in a distant area. The best example I can give you is this new research that just came out last month, but I don't believe many of your followers or maybe even you guys don't know about, but there's a researcher named uh, Wilkes, uh, Jan Wilkes, Wilkes yes. and, and he um, published this paper last, last month talking about the relationship of the ankle to the posterior thigh. And what he did in this study is while moving the ankle, they wanted to look at what was mechanically happening to the hamstring group by using ultrasound. So they had an ultrasound head you know, on the back of the thigh, and then they were visualizing what was happening underneath the skin while they were moving the ankle. And they've done the same type of study at the cervical spine, doing the same thing, looking at what happens to the cervical spine when we're moving the ankle. And what they're able to find, at least with this preliminary study, is that when you move the ankle, there's a substantial amount of movement that occurs in the muscle, as well as this fascial bag that covers the muscle when, when you're affecting something distant. And that, to me, is really profound because how many of your clients or people you guys interact with say that they have tight hamstrings? So maybe you guys could answer. Is there a percentage that you want to throw out? <laughs> oh, probably at a least, lot. At, yeah, well over fifty percent. I think a lot percentage. Yeah, a lot percentage is the So the point is, is that generally us in this category, we're going to intervene. We're going to influence their hamstring by doing a bunch of different tactics, which we all know. There's stretching. There's soft tissue. There's there's ways of improving that range of motion. But what if that didn't work? And by understanding what Wilkes is providing us in the research of this attachment uh, between these different areas of the body via the fascial system, I might want to go and challenge the person's ankle or foot complex because now we know that there's a direct link from one tissue to the other. And I think this really broadens what we can offer the people that we work with. Uh, rather than focusing on the isolated, you know, body, we're going to be looking at the body as a whole. And I think that's what the fascial system does best. It gets us to step back and really look at the system versus just the specific parts. Okay. So when did you graduate? You went to Palmer, correct? Palmer West. Yeah. Palmer West. Uh, I graduated did, in 03. 03. That significant difference between you today versus when you came out of your, your, your thought process and ideology, but when you came out, when you graduated, graduated out of Palmer, especially in regards to movement, I mean, think yeah. about that evolution of where you come from. Yeah, it, it's scary, to be honest. I'm a kin, you know, I got my undergrad in kinesiology and exercise science back in the 90s. I did my master's in adaptive kinesiology, working with special populations. Then I got my DC degree uh, because I really wanted to put my hands on people and affect them in that um, arena. And the difference in my education in respect to the body, uh, mm -hmm. from my undergrad to my DC program, which was, you know, within, let's say, a 10 to 15 year period, probably not that much, say 10 year period, was similar, if not uh, exactly the same. So what we learned about the body was, here's the muscle, this is the action, this is the innervation, uh, and this is how we learn, you know, to intervene, uh, both as a movement expert and as a manual expert. But leaving in 2003, nothing really necessarily changed that much in respect to my method of approach because there wasn't any renaissance, I think, until about 2010. So about the last decade 
is where you start seeing a landslide of the, of the research really looking at this network of tissue just below the skin that we used to just dissect away. So if you think about how we learned about the human body in anatomy labs, when we start to cut into the cadaver, this, this white filmy tissue that overlied the muscle that we wanted to focus on was basically a nuisance. We would literally cut this network of tissue and peel it back to be able to visualize the hamstring, and for example, so then we can study anatomy. Not considering this network of tissue that we just cut away is significantly important. And it's only been the last 10 years that we've learned more about what it does mechanically, like I'm talking about how it connects the ankle to the rest of the body. And more importantly, and this is something that I think we should talk about is what is it doing neurologically? How does it talk to the brain to be able to assist how we move our body? So that's in 10 years, dude. So I spent seven of my 17 years of practice really being a mechanic, just pounding on muscles because that's what I thought I was doing. But the last 10 years, a significant shift has happened because of all this new research in this in this fascial science. And, and that's what you really, I mean, you talked about the input, the feedback, and really what is the messages that are be sent, being sent to the brain so that we can process this and then get that information back to the proper tissue lines. And that's the thing is feedback, really, what we're yeah. looking at. And, and how do we improve that feedback system? And how do we give better input to get that better output that we're looking for? And, yeah. and, and I think tapes and sticks are, are tools that really give better input, better feedback. Yeah, I, th that's why I've always resonated with what you guys have done. If I have to kind of come to the secondary benefit of this fascial system, you know, mechanically, the, the first suggestion for your followers is just understand these connections. Once you do, it starts to allow, allows you to orient what you're going to do with someone with that new knowledge of how muscles connect the muscles via the fascial system. Now, shifting gears to the neurological um, capacity of this network uh, and how it communicates to the brain, which is the central governor to all of our movement, we want to give the brain as much information as possible. And what we're learning is that there's a couple of uh, key ways of of maximizing that conversation. Maybe, you know, rather than using a really shitty phone, you're gonna use a megaphone to scream at the brain with these other tactics. And they include movement and touch. And this is why I'm a big fan of what you do. You move with a stick that you have to create a haptic stimulus, a, a touch stimulus, which augments the conversation to the brain, giving the brain more information to make a better decision in respect to how to move. Tape is just a tool that increases the amount of stimulus because you're applying it directly to the skin and, it's, and it stays on your body for three to five days, arguably, depending on the person. So we get a, a longer lasting conversation with tape on the body outside of the movement practice. Uh, but the combination of both, of stick work with movement and tape, is what I think you guys are already doing. The, the combination of the two really builds that conversation to the brain. And I think that's what's most exciting about it. So with touch, too, I mean, would you include soft tissue work in there? So massage therapy and, you know, yeah. ART and that as well? Yeah, all, all touch forms, uh, you know, across the spectrum apply here. So they're... When we're talking about how the 
this fascial system, or we're going to talk about that. This includes the skin. So I don't want to disregard you know, the skin as a component of this network, but the skin, I use the skin as a handle to be able to, to stimulate the fascial system neurologically. I'll explain that. So this skin that, that is flexible and very accessible, I'm using to be able to pull in multiple directions. That, that also happens when I move my body part. My skin is literally translating stress to the fascial system that lives just below it. And the reason I think it's so important to know about the skin and this fascial layer is because they're the furthest away from the joint center, when you move any body part, what moves most is the tissues furthest away from that access point. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah. yeah. Right. So think about that, right? So if I want to maximize my conversation, I want to take advantage of a tissue or tissues that move most when you move your body. Um, and the skin and fascia are the two that we really focus our attention on when it comes to tape touch that is manual therapy. Um, that includes soft tissue, you know, therapy like foam rolling and myofascial ball, uh, you know, manual therapy like ART and instrument assisted techniques. All of them stimulate those receptors within the skin and fascia that translates that conversation to the brain. In skin and fascia, uh, we again used to think that it was just a covering. The skin covers our body; it protects us from our organs falling out, if you will. Um, and the and the fascial bag, the fascial bag is just keeps it in these neat little compartments. But what we don't didn't know until recently is that these networks of tissue, the skin and fascia, are probably the most highly innervated structures of our body outside of our eyes. So they, they provide a lot of, of communication because they're densely stimulated or densely packed with receptors like keys on a keyboard. And so that's really what we're taking advantage of in touch. When we put tape on someone, when I touch someone with my hands or use a foam roller, the new knowledge is that we're stimulating the receptors in these networks of tissue, which talks to the brain, and then the brain gives us the outcomes that we notice. So is this why, you know, some people, when they wear compression gear, they feel safer, they feel stronger because it gives them that feedback? Yeah, I think the word safe is the critical one here. Um, the, the feedback is absolute, meaning by just stimulating these receptors that I'm referring to with compression socks, uh, compression gear in general, uh, a strip of tape. They stimulate these receptors and they improve the clarity of where that body part is. So it improves our awareness. So there's lots of really good research in respect to people that don't move well, as well as those that are experiencing pain, that if you measured the clarity of a body part, let's take the knee, for example, or now that I'm showing you here, let's take I have an elbow injury. Mm -hmm. Um the clarity of this body part within the map in my brain that represents it is becomes compromised. It, it, it decreases its resolution of this body part. So our awareness of where this is in space diminishes. If you don't know where something is in space, the likelihood of your brain allowing you to move it optimally is diminished as well. So pain and lack of movement are connected because of a lack of awareness of where a body part is. So by putting something like compression gear on, a strip of tape on, the theory, and now starting to get supported with evidence, 
is that you're stimulating the receptors that talk to that part of the brain that improve the awareness of this region of the body, which increases the safety of you moving it. That's the, that's the new terminology you're going to hear. If I don't know where this is, my threat goes up and my movement goes down uh, because I'm, I'm not sure where this is in space. But if I know where it is and I have a very clear map of this region of my body, my safety goes up so my movement gets better. And that's, that's the key when it comes to these types of touch therapies. We've talked about compression. Um, <laughs> and, and we see a lot of people now, kind of, can we, let's talk about cupping. Because you guys have rock pods, we more people are seeing cupping techniques on social media, the inter, internet, um, and there's a lot of people like I don't get what cupping does. What the hell is that? And, and so, can you kind of briefly discuss the difference between compression versus cupping? I don't have much scientific evidence because um, even though cupping, and I have them right in front of me because I'm literally treating my own calf as we speak, uh, these crazy little silicone cups that look like plungers, which they are. Um, they're, they're one version of probably hundreds of different types of, of cups that are put on the body, typically for a therapeutic use, right? So these cups really are based off of Chinese medicine that have been using uh, cupping therapy for well over 5,000 years. And ultimately what they're doing is they're putting these cups on specific body parts it creates a suction, so I'm going to apply it to this body part. So it creates a suction on the tissue versus compression, obviously creates downward pressure on something. What we're starting to better understand outside of what the Chinese medicine philosophy is, is that this decompression brings blood flow to the area. So it literally brings blood to the area and it improves our energy flow. That's more of a Chinese medicine philosophy that's talking about using cupping therapy to be able to improve function and pain by improving chi flow or energy flow. Now, I say chi to any of my Western you know, um, society patients and clients are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so so the, the new, I guess, westernized version of cupping therapy is, is really taking the evidence that we've learned about compression, which is downward pressure, and applying it to decompression, which is still mechanically altering this layer of tissue that we've been talking about, the skin and fascia. So when I put a cup on someone and I apply it to whatever body part, uh, this is now being mechanically affected. The tissue underneath the bell here is being lifted up. So it's literally grabbing the tissue and pulling it up. It's mechanically affecting all of the tissue locally. And from my discussion about Wilkes, it's now demonstrating an effect happening more globally along these myofascial chains. And we're stimulating specific receptors when we lift skin like this, just like we would if we were going to put compression. Why would someone choose a compressive therapy like compressive gear or foam rolling or ART versus decompression? really comes down to perception, uh, expectations, and tolerance. So let me touch on each of those. If, if I perceived cupping to be more appropriate than foam rolling because cupping 
I've, I've learned somewhere down my, down the line that cupping is a therapeutic tool and I have an expectation that it's going to, it's going to give me pain relief and it's more comfortable on my body versus using compression. That's why someone might want to go towards decompression using cupping versus going towards a compressive therapy like foam rolling uh, or manual therapy where someone drives an elbow into you. That's how I separate the two. It basically it comes down to the expectation and tolerance of the tissue to a compressive force versus a decompressive force. And that is, is all individual. Oh, fantastic. That's very yeah. good. So have people started using the, the cupping for almost like a warm up? Because you said, you know, it's providing more stimulation. So yeah. people do foam rolling before they train. Can we use cupping before we train? I wish, and I hope that's the case. And if, if I had uh, my crystal ball, that is one of the messages that I want to convey. And, and, and this is to a fault, meaning that the rehab and therapeutic communities hate the fact that I think this way. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think that a, therape- a therapist that does cupping hates the fact that I think people can do it on themselves? It was business. Yeah, business. That's hallelujah, right? And, and so, listen, I, I don't want to disparage any of your listeners or any of my colleagues. I understand that when it comes to the use of these tools as a therapeutic tool, the therapist should be using them in all aspects of what I believe. As a movement re-education and warm-up tool, I think the same device, same little cup, can be used to be able to prepare the tissue and prepare the body to move. I completely believe that that's the case. So do I have to come up with a completely different, you know, don't call them rock pods, but call them, I don't know, call them whatever. I'm definitely not, yeah, I'm definitely not the marketer, but do I need to come up with a different product to be able to demonstrate this? Because if I'm just recently out of uh, about a year, let's say 14 months out of total reconstruction of this shoulder, my map of this area of the body has been, I call it smudged, meaning that I just had no idea where this joint was in space. So going with the science that we're learning, if I can better communicate this part of my body to the brain, I can better move this part of the body and I will have decreased pain. That's been well demonstrated. So what a cool tool to be able to simply apply to my skin and I can apply it in multiple different areas. And you can see me doing it in real time. I can do it so quickly and it's so easily as a self-applier and now take it through my range of motion tactics, take it through some of my stability tactics of which this is not, um, you know, talking to the choir. I would use my stick mobility stuff with the enhancement of this information using a cup and even some tape to be able to maximize the outcome. That's, that's the additive effect that I really want people to think about versus just using one, why not use a couple of things to maximize the the outcome? Yeah, I, I really like putting the rock pods on specific areas and then moving those areas dynamically just like you did. And, right. and, and before, uh, do that in just a warm-up type of activity and then take them off. And now we should feed, that person should feel better in that area. And now we can get into more of a, much more specific training aspect afterwards. But uh, I think the feedback from the people I've used that technique on has been really good. They're like, oh, wow, it feels a lot better right away. So and that's what, we want that immediate change so that way we have access to be able to train them a little bit better 
and, and, and safer uh, yeah. with that technique. Yeah. So I think yeah. for me personally, I love it. Now, I think you know, the only, the only down, I guess the pitfall of cupping, you know, I'm going to maybe kind of not use the term cupping therapy in this category, but using cupping as a warm up tactic is just the potential of skin discoloration. So then if you're informing your uh, clientele that I'm going to be using these cups, these cups are not used as a therapeutic in a therapeutic sense. I'm using them for these reasons as we dis- as we discussed. And the, there's a potential that you're, you might have some dark blotches underneath the bell once I remove them. That's the only negative component that I, that I could see. Now, there are contraindications and both absolute and relative to this type of intervention, but they're not any different than the contraindications of foam rolling. So uh, if I'm speaking to the trainers in, in this uh, interview, then you just need to know, you need to do your due diligence to ascertain is something like this suitable for the person you're working with. So I'm not suggesting we do it haphazardly and just throw it on everyone. Um, you need to know that the, the risks of, of applying any type of intervention on someone. But I mean, the, the, the outcomes are really cool. And I, I really like this idea of additive stimulus uh, of movement with some type of touch. Uh, I'm starting to see much more evidence to support that the combination of the two is giving people the best outcomes. Off that note, it's, it's kind of like we see, especially when we deal with the older uh, clientele, because they tend to have more skin issues, uh, yeah. so those are people that I would just right off the right off the bat say, look, I would direct that person to somebody who's much more hands on to treat mm-hmm. some issues versus doing the compression or doing the decompression with the pods or, or the foam roller because of understanding that manual therapist should have a much greater understanding of how to deal with fragile skin and fragile tissues. Uh, so yeah. that's something that I would de- definitely say. I think you should recommend that to anyone that's listening is that, uh, and this, this comes to the idea of what is your network? Who, who are you working with that allows you to adequately refer to the right person and not only refer to the right person, but that person has open communication lines with uh, the referee. And what I mean by that is that if I referred, so back in the day, Someone comes in, they had knee pain, I'm a trainer, um, and I just didn't feel comfortable with it. As a general rule, I would be referring them back to their PCP, their primary care, right? Uh, most primary care, let's say I was taking this person through uh, agility drills because they wanted to, to improve their agility for X activity. And they go to their P- PCP, they have knee pain, it's kind of vague, what do you think the PCP is going to say in respect to their agility exercise? To do it or not do it? Not do it. Not do it. So yeah. what I mean by getting the appropriate uh, referral is to get someone that you have open yeah. communication with versus just saying, go see your doctor and hope for the best. I want to communicate directly with that primary care that I have a connection with. And I want to create that communication, that discord between the two of us um, to be able to come up with the best plan for that individual. Uh, and to your case, this is a good example. As our population is getting older, skin issues are something to consider when it comes to tape uh, and other forms of tools like, like the cupping. So I think that's really important for you guys to have, for anyone to have someone in their network that they trust. It's just a little 
odd question maybe. When you're playing hockey, have you ever found yourself literally just sitting there watching your teammates and, and just imagining work, like you're going into work, like thinking, watching the teammates skate and going, this is what's happening, and, and do you see yourself doing that? Like I find myself doing that sometimes. I'll sit on the bench, I'll watch my teammates, and I'll be like, oh, this is – and I just start thinking about movement, and, and I'm not even thinking about the game anymore. Yeah, I spend a lot of time in the penalty box. Um, <laughs> so, um, and I think it's only because of poor refereeing. So, just don't get me wrong. I think it's got nothing to do with my style of play. Uh, but um, I, I, I do that everywhere. So, like in the penalty box at the mall, which I try to limit, especially you know now. Um, yeah. And and everywhere else. So I, I tell people that I have I travel a lot for teaching just like you guys do. And, and it, airports and, and airplanes are um, an interesting arena to, to see people move. And so hockey has been part of my life, my entire life. And so I definitely do that on a regular basis is looking at when they're doing a specific movement, say a lateral push of the skate to be able to glide to a specific spot. I'm thinking now more so than in the past before I'd say, man, the adductors are really working eccentrically. And man, look at those abductors doing their thing. Now I'm thinking that fascial chain is being stretched like a mother and it's going to spring back. And if I could really show that person how to take advantage of that, that's how my brain works now is looking at this bag of tissue that, like I said, we've been disregarding for you know generations. Now I'm thinking about that in everyone's movements, walking, sitting, squatting, hinging, skating, doesn't matter. So yes, the answer is I do that a lot. <laughs> I think one of the things that I've seen, and I've seen you personally make this public as far as your view on movement parameters mm-hmm. and how that's evolved, how, how you've commented about how you changed your ideology on, on what movement parameters should be or what they shouldn't be, so to speak. That's been an evolution as well. Um, and, you know, it, as you guys might feel when you when you present an argument, it's a little unnerving when you initially kind of put it out there, um, especially on the interwebs, that you say, this is, my, <laughs> this is my new stance. This is what I think. And then you just get, you know, hammered by every side. Everybody. Because what, what you're doing by having an opinion is potentially and most likely challenging someone else's bias, right? And we see this in every category of thinking from definitely politics to to movement. And so I I just felt inauthentic uh, not sharing this new new framework that I've been really defining over my entire career. This is not just my chiropractic career, my entire career as an athlete playing two sports, hockey and lacrosse, to where I am now. the answer is that I, I needed to kind of express my new definition of what I think movement fluency looks like. What is, what is, is, what, and is there an ideal way of moving your body? That was my first question. And my answer to that is that I don't believe that there is one size fits all to any movement. Um, and let me, let me clarify that is when I say that there is no one size fits all, I'm talking about you moving your own machine, your own body. I'm not necessarily talking about it under a load or under a bar, right? So let's let's kind of verify that I'm talking about that when it comes to me sitting and standing, me 
lunging, me walking, running, I don't believe that there is one way of accomplishing that task. Uh, nor do I believe that symmetry, which has been, it was literally the name of my clinic when I started in practice in Los Gatos. I no longer believe that symmetry is always necessary either. So those are two, you know, inflammatory statements to a lot of people in the movement category, and maybe even for you guys, and I'm happy to discuss this, is that I don't believe that there's one size fits all to movement, and nor do I believe that symmetry is as, as important as we used to give it credit. So if I say those two things, I'm going to give you a definition and then maybe we can talk about this. I believe that movement fluency, just like language fluency, you got to have the necessary parts to be able to express something fluently. Movement fluency to me is now defined as uh, the ability to express the shape and or shapes, depending on the movement, um, to accomplish the motor task or objective in an effective and an efficient way in any environment. So can you assume the shape to accomplish the task effectively and efficiently? And I could define all of these if you want in any environment. That's what I think movement fluency is. So let me just kind of show you. Can you guys see me? Where, where yep, 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 yep. So I'm going to try to do something because I've been trying to figure out ways of communicating this. And I'm going to put this in a place that hopefully you can see some of it. But I'm standing up now. And let's say my objective is to pick up this floss band from the ground. I have to be able to express the necessary shapes to be able to pick this up. Now, mm -hmm. uh, I, could, I could pick this up by just bending over my hips. I could pick this up by squatting down to pick it up with my hands. Uh, I could do it on a single leg. I could lunge down into a staggered stance. There's lots of ways of me uh, accomplishing that task, right? The question now is, is it effective? Is the, is the strategy that I use, are the shapes that I use to do that task, are they effective and efficient? This is where I needed to kind of come up with my explanation of what effective is. Every single one of those um, examples were effective. I, and I, I, I'm sure you could say that every single one got me to do the task, which was pick this up, right? Yep. So that's how I deem effective. Now we have to decide, was it efficient? And this is where it gets muddy, where it gets gray, because let's say, Dennis, you might think the squat was the most efficient way to do that task. And right. Neil, you're saying, stupid ass, it's the hinge. We all know it's the hinge. And I'd say, man, my right foot hurts. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it on my standing on one leg because for me, that's more efficient. So you, we have to define what efficiency is and what most people will do when it comes to assessing if some shape or movement is efficient is they'll say biomechanically, it should look like this. You should have no flexion of the spine or the lumbar spine. I should be able to hinge at this at you know, certain degrees at my hips. I should be able to flex a certain amount with my knees. If I take the biomechanics off the table, at least for this discussion, and now define efficiency as, is the person confident? And um, maybe I'll just stick with confidence. Is the person demonstrating confidence in achieving that goal? If I wanted to pick this thing up and I was going to squat down and I had to do this to pick it up, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, would, would you consider that someone demonstrating 
confidence in doing that that movement. No, no. <laughs> yeah, so, so how I'm defining it is that I want the individual that I'm working with, the N of one, to tell me if that movement or the shapes, the number of shapes that are necessary to accomplish that task is efficient. And what we use within our education in teaching this is to say, I want you to look for these neurological cues. I want you to look for things that your clients will show you every day and they're subtle, they're, they're nonverbal, and some of them are verbal, they'll grunt and then they'll swear at you and other, other things, but most of them are nonverbal. Things like they hold their breath like I was doing, mm-hmm. they clench their teeth, they grip their hands and their toes, they, they grunt, uh, they sigh, um, give me other ones. They, they have dilation of their, of their pupils. Oh, all, good, yeah. all, all, all indicators that the person isn't confident in that shape. So I use that as my staple to say, if your choice, your effective choice to pick up that object or to accomplish that task is in this way, I need to build your confidence in that, in that shape or shapes for you, not for biomechanics, because I can, I don't have them up the top of my head, but I can present with you 20 different biomechanical evaluations of accomplishing a squat, and they're all different. They will all communicate a different standard biomechanically to accomplish the task. So I don't lean as much on the biomechanical requirements because there's little evidence to support that biomechanics translate to injury risk and performance as much as we used to think. I use the individual to tell me, if your strategy is this, I want to give you the most amount of efficiency in that strategy to accomplish your goal. So I, I don't know if I lost you anywhere, but that's no, what I, no. that's my, my that's my new definition is that can you assume the shapes? That's pretty easy. If I need to pick something up in, above my head, I got to have a certain amount of flexion of my shoulder to express the shape to grab them, right? So if I don't have that the necessary prerequisites, what things can I do as a as a trainer, as a coach, as a movement specialist to be able to improve their mechanical ability to assume that shape. That's step one. Once they get the shape, now I need to figure out, are they confident in this shape? And that's where remapping, making sure that they're aware of that body part. That's what I've been using cups for on my shoulder. That's where strength and stability and motor control all come in to build my confidence in moving that body part. That's that component. And then you put effective and efficient shapes together Now you need to be able to express it in all three planes. You need to be able to have the ability to express this shape. What if a strong wind comes and it changes my position? Do I have the the reactivity to some type of environmental constraint that I might be faced with in a sporting environment or an activity of daily living? So that's where the environment component of my fluency message comes in, is that you need to have ownership of that movement not only in the direct plane to accomplish the task, but what if you're faced with some type of environmental alteration? How do you adapt to that? And that just comes down to, are you adaptable or not? So I know that was long-winded, dude. And no, that's yeah. fantastic. But, but that is my new definition of what I try to do when I'm working on someone's movement. I think All, it's right in line with what you know, we, how we view it and what we teach exactly. you know, in our courses or what we're teaching people with the sticks. And we want people to be comfortable when yeah. they're in a position we want them to look like they belong there 
That's and right. they're comfortable. It's it's it, even under load, it's still comfortable. Like mm-hmm. they've got resistance, they've got external load, but they don't look like they're going to pass out. They don't look like they're like, oh my god, this is torture. <laughs> they they still belong in that position. They still own it, and that's one of the things I think we all agree on. Is that's our goal? Is really one of our goals is to get people confident with shapes. And then not only be confident with shapes, but then progress to be confident with shapes with load, yeah. besides their body weight. That's you right. know, I think um, you know, watching my daughter grow up. So she's about she's almost two and a half now. Mm-hmm. Just watching her progress her movements, like she doesn't really move on to a new movement until she's she's mastered it or she feels really confident about going on to the next thing. You know, and if you're around but, a lot of little kids, you see that. Oh, I, I recorded. And this is eerily recording my daughter, you know, doing anything, you know, you know, she's 11 now, but watching that serial growth, developmental growth uh, is an awesome exercise for any parent. Yeah. Uh, um, I wouldn't recommend recording any, uh, anyone else's children. It kind of gets weird. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, I'm just watching the form. That's it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) But, But your own, uh, it's such a cool exercise to your point is that even, even if they, you know, they might mis- be mistaken and this, I love this conversation is that I would watch my daughter from a, let's say uh, a four point stance. She was getting in her bare stance and she was rocking back and forth and I could see her getting ready to kind of set back into a deep lunge or excuse me, a deep squat. And she would, you could see her, her mind thinking that little, you know, one-year-old mind and yeah. she would push she would push back and then she'd know you immediately no balance i have no control of the shape and she <laughs> topples over right but that that experiential uh, event gave her information fed her brain to say and that strategy didn't work i need to i need to figure out some other strategy to get you know me where i want to because her goal was to be able to get into that shape so she can you know, get her arms free so she can grab whatever toy or whatever she wanted. I just think it's fascinating to look at kids, um, infants in that growth phase that we should be applying to our adult clients. Uh, and in fact, there's a great system if you, I'm sure you're aware of it, DNS, the Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization. Uh, I, I'm a huge proponent of that. Uh, and I feel if you guys haven't had this relationship with them, Stick mobility and DNS should be linked because how you guys communicate your message and theirs is only uh, complementary. So it's just the knowledge of those developmental stages is basically my definition of what the shape should look like. So that's why I think to your point, looking at your children and in professionally looking at DNS developmental stages, those are the shapes that I'm talking about. You need to own all of these developmental shapes and then own it under load, like you're saying, Dennis. Let's go back to what you talked about with symmetry. And mm-hmm. that is something that I personally have had to evolve in my train of thought, too, is because in I use the same way. Everything's got to be symmetrical. And then you kind of start to understand that maybe that's not, the, uh, that's not what it needs to be because maybe that person is adapted to that position – and there's, they're pain-free. They still move into the shapes that they need to be, but you see all mm-hmm. these people, they're like, oh, 
this scapula sits up way high, a little bit higher. So we really need to pull this down. We got to have these mm-hmm. in exact alignment. And, and it is, it's an ideology that really pushes a lot of people's belief system and, and how that needs to be applied. Hot topic, right? Yeah. yeah. If, if I went and I have done this, but I'm not doing it to try to, to be inflammatory and to start a, a, a social media war. But if you just go out and say, symmetry doesn't matter, uh, posture is everything, um, things like that either really supports a certain category of the audience and completely pisses off the rest. And, and there's some cool stuff just recently that kind of leans towards at least the acceptance that it may not be as important as it used as we used to think. So I used to be all or none. Symmetry is critical. And that's why I named my facility symmetry. And this is the cool part of evolution is kind of letting that philosophy go away when you learn new information. But the new information is starting to lean on, you know, high end movers. Let's give you an example of uh, Usain Bolt. Have you guys, we did a study about the biomechanics of his um, of his body. Did you guys read that? No, no. So in the last couple of months, maybe the last three to six months, uh, uh, researchers out of New York did a study on him, a biomechanical, a really in-depth biomechanical study of his gait. You know, the fastest human being on this planet for many years. Um, they wanted to see how does this guy move and um, how can we replicate it? So the hypothesis would be that this guy is so symmetrically tuned that his system is the most efficient being there is when it comes to running from point A to point B. What they found was that he had a significant scoliosis, one, uh, two, uh, which is an asymmetry for those that are Mm -hmm. unfamiliar with scoliosis. And two, he had a significant alteration in his gait cycle where he had about 15% greater force output on his, and I might have this wrong, so it's one way or the other, but 15% greater force on one foot strike and 15% longer um, stance phase on the other side. So a significant alteration in his biomechanics that was asymmetrical, including a, a scoliotic spine, all demonstrating that his posture, he's always been, I guess, faulted with a, a peculiar running style. It, it's not like the others that he'd run against, but they would say he's still the fastest man on this, on this planet. So it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Symmetry or having an idealistic view of how someone should run, he wouldn't be that, that person because he has so many quote-unquote biomechanical faults that most people would say you can't be the fastest person on this planet when you present with these. So we got to fix those. And for him, it's perfectly suited for his body to efficiently express those shapes for a hundred meters or two. Yeah. We, well, we debate that with the whole LeBron James thing, right? Yeah. yeah. We've talked about that when people see LeBron James do a squat, holy shit to the form police come out of nowhere. Right. This needs fixing. Oh, that yeah. needs to be fixed. Holy shit, we gotta do this, or this guy's gonna blow up, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. this guy. And yeah, we sit back and we go, he's going on almost twenty years. He's hardly had an injury. He's still, you know, if not the best basketball player in the world. I don't know if I would change anything. <laughs> but that's but that's the part I think we get stuck in. And so I, I don't want to beat this, you know, this down so much. Is that here's the. The new science, and this is where I lean on what the science is telling me, 
And I also lean on my experience. And that's, you know, coupled together, it gives me enough ammunition to feel confident in what I'm saying is that I've seen enough people that don't demonstrate symmetry that are still effective and efficient movers. That was my 20-year career. The science is also telling us that there's a preoccupation with biomechanics and, and that preoccupation is not based on the connection between biomechanics and injury rates and biomechanics and performance. That's what I just discussed in respect to Usain Bolt and LeBron. So why, why won't you maybe decrease the emphasis that you put on symmetry and really focus on the person and what their task is uh, within the environment that they're in and use that to be able to create the best mover that you can find. And that's, I feel much more comfortable in that space versus saying your, your angular inclination of your scapula is not 10 degrees. We got to get it to seven degrees um, and we need to do a lot more rhomboid work. And, and the person's like, I don't even know what the hell you just said. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know what that is as a, as a, as a therapist. And so both the information and the purpose of the, of the tactic no longer matters. But if I tell someone, I want you to get from point A to point B, and I want you to be able to breathe all the way through, they can, they can get that right away versus holding your breath. I'm saying that, that how translatable it is, having a definition like I defined and I think what you guys believe in just makes it easier to apply. It really does. Well, I've seen, I've seen trainers uh, lose people where, you know, they're, they're chasing, all right, we want to chase this overhead mobility. So that's all they work on for all the sessions where the person came in and is like, hey, I want to I wanna lose weight, you know, and I want to be able to play with my kids. But now this trainer is, is just chasing that overhead mobility, you know, until they get it, then they can't move on. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's a big problem too. Yeah, and that this is going back to what you guys do best um, is that you're attaching a tool like you have to a movement goal, and it, it the the trans transferability, if that's even a word, from what you're asking them to do to what they need to do in what I call their meaningful movement. So everyone has a meaningful movement. They might say, "My meaningful movement is to be able to walk on a nightly basis with my spouse, or to run to." burn off the calories to, to lose weight, whatever it is, your, your tactics that you, that I've seen and that I use under your umbrella easily transfer what I'm doing in the, you know, the session to my real life experience. And that's what I think is most important here. And I think a lot of people need to start to understand is that movement is what matters to people. And so having a tactic that resembles it as close as possible, that gives them effectiveness and efficiency, that is the secret sauce. Not that you have to have a certain degree of spinal flexion to be able to, to make something work. It just doesn't work that way. What are some things that you're going to be working on down the road here? Is you got a, any little previews on stuff that you got in the shoot? We have an education platform. The education platform separate from the company of Rock Tape. Uh, Rock Tape is obviously the company that created the products. Uh, and the products that we have under our umbrella is kinesiology tape, that stretchy tape that you see on people. We have myofascial cups like you just saw. The floss band, which is a compressional band. We have, what else am I missing? Oh, we have instrument-assisted tools, uh, which are just stainless steel tools that you use to be able to improve uh, uh, 
mobility of tissue, if you will. So the, that's all the product. Our education is uh, platform is called Functional Movement Training. And under that FMT platform, we have education of how to use each of those tools. The evolution of our education has moved from therapeutic-based, meaning that it's focusing specifically on therapists. Now we're starting to move into the movement space. Um, and what I was just sharing with you is we have a new class called the FMT Movement Specialist. And it's, it's my uh, viewpoint of, of giving people the foundational uh, prerequisites to be able to express any meaningful movement. And that is without load. So to your point earlier, Dennis. So the movement specialist is kind of using that definition that I shared with you and giving you tactics, mobility, stability, uh, movement tactics to be able to get someone to express whatever shape they want uh, within reason, obviously. And so I'm, I'm liking this new direction that we're taking. And part of that direction of moving into the movement category is hopefully uh, making stronger alliances with companies like yours. And that's, you know, I know Dennis and Neil, we've talked about this forever. There's uh, some crazy world events that have delayed uh, this <laughs> progression on this. But one thing that I'm most proud of is that we're starting to create these alliances with like-minded companies that are saying the same thing, you know, uh, and that's what I, I think the, the what's coming down the chute to your point is that there's going to be some cool alliances. Uh, I'm not going to speak for you guys, but I want to be able to connect pods and tape with sticks. I want to be able to create um, some more information of how to use floss bands for sprinting coaches. Uh, I, I want to be able to start to amalgamate these tools with these movement philosophies to create this additive effect that we're starting to see more and more. So that's what's coming down. Very nice. Yeah. I think what's interesting too is, is especially coming from the training side is in the last few years, I've messaged you, do I do, do I, should I take this course? Do I belong in this course? But the ability to, to be able to have the confidence and, and know that I'm going to learn something by doing Courses that I typically wouldn't think that I was I was able to, to go to or attend. Uh, so something as simple as like the dissection courses from Tom Myers, or uh, I know we have the upcoming uh, next year Fascia Congress up in yeah. Montreal. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so for coaches out there or trainers, uh, I don't hesitate or don't be afraid to to. Uh, go ahead and, t and enter these, take these courses or go to these uh, summits, you're going to get a lot of information out of it that's definitely going to pertain to your training systems and how you handle your clients and how you work with your clients. But I think there's overall, I think there's still a lot of stigma of, of this is more clinical and I, and I don't belong there. So that's something I kind of want to try to to kind of remove that stigma uh, and still be able to get coaches to go, okay, I, I can go to this, I can attend this and get something out of it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And uh, the Fascial Research Society, if I wanted to give your listeners uh, you know, some type of handle or hook to look into, is that I would look at the Fascial Research Society for a really relatively low cost. I, I don't recall what it costs to be a member, but um, especially lately, they've been adding a webinar almost weekly they had a symposium, two-day symposium last week, and these are all free for members, which they generally are, you know, typically 40 to $50 a pop. Um, so 
the the amount of information they're providing virtually, you know, during these COVID months, but also what they do live through their symposium. And the next one is in Montreal next, gosh, I want to say June. Is it, it was a summertime? Yeah, something like that. I'm planning on being there regardless. <laughs> yeah, they probably changed it. But anyways, these, these symposium that they have are really suitable for movement folks all the way to therapists. And the reason is, is that they're presenting more of the science that we could use to be able to arm ourselves with more information to make better decisions on movement and therapy. So I think it's pertinent for both. So I think that's a great suggestion is to, if, if fascia, you know, piques your interest, that's the, the, the resource that I would look at would be the Fascial Research Society and you could find them online. As for our education, the FMT, uh, our education, as, as I said, is primarily focused on the therapist, but we don't, we don't restrict anyone that wants to attend our course. And, and this is something that's been a little bit of a challenge as well, is that the therapist, the same therapist that get mad when I say you could use a pod on someone <laughs> on yourself, they hate the fact that we're allowing personal trainers um, even massage therapists uh, into our courses. And I, and I think that that's completely wrong in, in thought because everyone deserves education. Everyone deserves knowledge. It comes upon them, the ownership upon them, to decide if it's within their scope or not. And, and why I think knowledge is, is king is that if I'm armed as a trainer to know that uh, a a pod, a pod uh, therapy it does this to the body and it has this uh, effect on pain. And I have a client that is not responding to the, the tactics that I have within my scope. Wouldn't it be cool to know that they might be a good candidate for, you know, cupping, a good candidate for flossing, a good candidate for tape. So that's going back to our network idea. It, having that knowledge, I know exactly who I should be referring them to because I have the knowledge previously. Do, is it, does it make me licensed to be able to use those? Absolutely not. And we're really clear on that. So it just comes down to maybe expanding the breadth of where you're getting your knowledge from to obviously increase the breadth of what you can offer your clients. And I think that's a great point, what you just talked about, is it's, it's expanding your network. Because that way, even if you're not, it's not in your scope to utilize those tools or utilize hands-on, you at least have an understanding of what it is that they're doing. So that way, when you source out, when you say, hey, you need to go see so-and-so, you've established a network. But then when you set that client to that person, you at least understand or have a comprehension of what's going on on that end. So you're not ignorant. So you're not coming back and that person saying, well, we did this. And you're like... Okay, when that person or when you talk to that clinician or that therapist and they say, well, I did this, this and this, then you're like, okay, I understand what the effects of that was. And now I have a comprehension of how to implement that with the training that I'm about to give this this client. And that's really a big game changer just in that philosophy. I agree. And it, it augments and differentiates that trainer, that coach, that movement specialist with with knowledge that others in that same category do, do, do not and and i think quite often and i find that in the medical space is that the medical practitioner will diminish the importance of 
the trainers and coaches when I go, they are first line of defense. There, most people are going to be more comfortable of seeing a trainer and actually have more equity with that trainer than they do their medical practitioner. Um, so I, I think it's critical for med pros to be able to better better respect uh, trainers and coaches, and, and and trainers and coaches need to up their game on information so then they can optimally communicate and understand what's happening in the medical field. So that is the new bridge that we're trying to gap. It's a ridiculous cliche that everyone's been talking about my entire career is that we need to bridge the gap, bridge the gap, you know, and I think that's something that I feel that this new category that we're trying to categorize the movement specialist is giving that person enough knowledge that they feel confident enough to communicate with the med pro when necessary and vice versa. So that's, that's my ultimate goal moving forward is to, is to literally bridge that gap. Yeah, because we're not we're not trying to infringe on each other's jobs. We're not trying to take away jobs. What we're trying to do is open up those lines of communications so there's not that disconnect. And that's the biggest issue when we look at organizations that are screwed up. What's you know, one of the problems? One of the biggest problems is lack of communication. There's a disconnect from the top to the bottom. Employees don't know what the hell's going on at the top, and the top doesn't know what the hell's going on with the employees. So the same thing here. We're just trying to keep lines of communication open. So as, as trainers and coaches, yes, you need to step your game up. It's, it's, in our opinion, it's your role and your responsibility for what you're doing. You're dealing with the human body. So that comes with a lot of responsibility when you're dealing with the human body. And then just like you said, Steve, and, you know, the other way around is clinicians can't trivialize the role of the trainer or the coach. So uh, if we have a better understanding of the lines of communication of what each other is trying to do, then that only helps the client. And that's what we're ultimately after anyways. Yeah. Yeah. That, I'd like to believe that, but that's, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Not let's, let's get out of the uh, professional realm. How is Austin as far as differing between Northern California to Colorado to Austin uh, how has that transition been? I started off in uh, Florida, Tampa, Florida. Oh, then, uh, let, let me let's step to step back. I'm Canadian, so I started off in Toronto, uh, home of the best hockey team in the land. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least, yeah, in 1967, we were the best. Yeah, but I was just letting you know. But <laughs> went to Florida, Florida to. Uh, California, California to Colorado, and now I'm in Texas. Yeah. Uh, the demographic, as far as lifestyle changes, you've seen some. Uh, it's it's interesting to see the differences in in regions as far as flow of life, and some areas tend to be a little bit more hectic than the others, and vice versa. Yeah, the uh, by far um, California was, um, and I miss it. Dearly, it's. I still consider it home because I was there the longest when it comes to any of the states that we talked about. There was a go-to initiative. It seemed like everyone was going to somewhere uh, to get something done. That's the feeling that I got out of it. Moving to Denver, it was always a go-to, but usually the go-to was to the same place. There was some trail, um, some mountain. You know, their go-to wasn't work. wasn't you know, what we would talk about, which in the in NorCal, it was like, I'm going to uh, Apple, I'm going to Google, I'm going to some, you know, 
industry. In Colorado, it was to some mountain or some trail in the mountain. That was their conversation. And in, in Texas, um, there aren't any mountains, even though I live in, <laughs> even though I live in hill country, which is kind of a joke. But uh, the, uh, they're definitely much more active here, but the activity is segregated to uh, little grottos. Like the, their go-to is, let's go to this watering source, because if you don't have water here in Texas, you won't die on the vine. So I just find it really interesting of the environmental influence on each of the regions that I've been into. But Texas thus far has only been a year. And because of the temperature, everything revolves around water, either a pool or some type of watering hole. Denver was always a mountain, always. And then California was either the coast or their work. Can you quickly explain, because this always I always get a kick out of this, when people say, I'm going to go de- train in Denver for a month to increase my cardiovascular output, and you're like, are you really? So you spent some significant time in Denver. Yeah. What has that transition been like going from Denver to Austin as far as, let's say, that aspect of training? It's a good question. Um, I think part of it, and so I'm definitely not an exercise physiologist, but I've learned some interesting experiential aspects of going from, you know, in essence, sea level to, I lived at seven 7,000 feet, even though you can go much higher in Colorado, but that's where my home was, was at 7,000 feet. And now I'm back down to 800 or something like that right here in Texas. So here's the experience. Um, moving, you know, acutely moving to Denver, there's an, an immediate load on your system. So uh, it, it, I'll explain that by moving into my home. I had to move myself and I had my father and my brother with me and we all thought we were having heart attacks <laughs> into our home. But we were all challenged with our breathing and we had chest tightness because of the altitude that we weren't, none of us were used to. Now, generally, the acclimation time, and this is arguable, they would say between, you know, two to three days, you're looking at a certain acclimation to the altitude. I didn't feel like I ever got that acclimation when I lived there for five years. Um, so so I, I started looking into it more, but what I found very interesting, and I'm not sure if you guys know this, but genetically... There's a specific sector of the population that do, will never accommodate, oh. acclimate to altitude, depending on your lineage uh, of where your family line spent the majority of their lives. So I'm an Italian descent. My parents uh, and their parents and their parents are all from Italy, pretty much at sea level. Um, so, so I did a 23andMe. Have you guys done any of the genetic oh. tests? Yeah, yeah, I've done. Yeah, yeah. I did something so, like that. Most of the time, you're not going to get this information unless you get your raw data. And there's a, a company that's um, a woman named Rhonda Patrick. Do you guys follow Rhonda Patrick? No, no. Well, R- Rhonda Patrick is a PhD biologist. I think that's her background, and she has a great website. So anyone that's interested in uh, just health, I know you guys really dig what she talks about. But Rhonda Patrick spends a lot of time talking about genes, talking about thermotherapy, so uh, the effect of hyperthermic and hypothermic responses of the body, uh, especially hormonal responses. In fact, I have uh, a sauna here at my home because of the research that she promoted. 
from a Finnish study that demonstrate, let me just share this with you before I go forward, that demonstrates that spending 20 minutes in a sauna at about 180 degrees uh, Fahrenheit for 20 minutes, at least four days a week, decreases all-cause mortality by 40%. Wow. Whoa. All right. How much is that? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Get one. We have a sauna just outside on our back deck. Um, and it's, um, I think, you know, hovering around. It's a five person. We wanted one that my wife and I could at least lay down in. And it's, uh, you know, 3,002 to 3,000, you know. Oh, is that a, in, one of those infrared ones? No, this one no. is a, this one is a traditional. We had an okay. infrared one. When we lived in Denver, we had an infrared. I love this tangent we're going on, but <laughs> we had an infrared uh, in our home in Denver, in our bedroom. In fact, you can get like small little two-person ones, a thousand bucks infrared. Infrared generally, because you're using that type of energy versus ambient energy, um, a conductive energy using a, a traditional finish style. The infrared ones are typically cheaper. They heat the tissue from inside out versus the other one outside in. And uh, usually you can get them ones, those ones for indoor use. Uh, the only thing that I would suggest if you're looking at getting infrared saunas is make sure you get ones that have low uh, electromagnetic fields. So you don't want one that's exposing you to a bunch of EMF that basically counteracts all of the benefits. Mm, so that's my, that's my two cents on saunas. But Rhonda Patrick has a service where you can take your raw data, send it to her, and she will provide you much more detail on the specific, um, they call them SNPs. Uh, Every gene has caps on them, and the information within them can tell you, do you acclimate to altitude or not? I don't. So that's my whole point of that story was the acclimation most likely due where I always felt like I was compromised was probably due to the fact that I couldn't acclimate due to my genomic, genomic makeup. Isn't that cool? Oh, man, I want to do that. That's cool. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Do you find a bunch of stuff in respect to really diving into your genes further? My wife and I are actually doing it now, even with my daughter, to find out, you know, are, are we able to assimilate B12? Uh, my wife is not. So oh, she, has to oh. take a, she has to take a methylated b12 supplement otherwise any of the b12s that are non-methylated will never be assimilated into her system i don't i don't i have a tendency uh, towards type 2 diabetes according to my genes so i'm aware of that so that knowledge arms me with the understanding that i just need to i check my blood sugars on a regular basis i want to make sure that i'm managing that because the tendency genetic genetically i have a tendency towards that so um, getting your genes further assessed is a, a good idea, in my opinion. Did any of those tests talk about um, how you adapt to certain types of training at all? Like, yes, absolutely. Good point. Oh, cool. So you can actually figure out if genetically you're more. Um, it's it's more advantageous to be an endurance athlete versus a power athlete versus somewhere in between. Literally, it can give you indication of prospecting, and this is something that that might be done now, probably in countries that we don't have as many freedoms, but literally taking genes of children and kind of identifying genetically, should this kid be moved towards more of a power sport versus more of an endurance sport, according to your genes, and you can't identify those. The things that we are learning uh, on, a, on a daily and monthly and yearly basis is just fascinating. 
It is. And, but this is our job. And this is why I think, that, you know, podcasts like this and people like us can really deliver. And, and I do it within the scope that I have within my category is that if I'm working with someone that, um, let's give you an example. I'm having someone that's having cervical neck pain. So neck pain, maybe some chronic headaches. And they've seen umpteen different therapists and they come to see me. The knowledge that I have in respect to genetic testing, and let's say I was practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I have a new uh, patient that comes to see me because I'm last chance Steve. And this knowledge of of genetic uh, makeup and how it might influence your function might be something that I pull from versus thinking that I'm going to be just better than the other 15 people that they saw in scraping and manipulating and adjusting their cervical spine. I'd say, you've had that done already. Has anyone ever looked at your ability to acclimate to the altitude? Because if you can't acclimate, do you think you're going to breathe more diaphragmatically or more apically? More apically. Yeah. More apically. Yeah. So you, yeah. you're going to... You're going to be in fight or flight for oxygen, mm-hmm. chronic. So that person is going to be doing everything under their ability to be able to get as much O2, much air into their lungs to get oxygen because their system is already compromised genetically. So they're breathing like this, and the issue has nothing to do with these muscles that are working over, overly working. It may do to the fact that they just can't acclimate. So that's why I think knowledge is king, and that's why – you know, even sharing it with you guys, could that information influence you to help someone down the road that's really not being um, helped with the traditional way of thinking? And that's why knowledge is so important. That's why we don't restrict people from learning. I want to share the shit with people in my class, regardless of where you're coming from. I literally had an electrician I'm sure you guys are seeing it more and more now too. It's not just trainers that are coming to see you in respect to your courses. There's just people that want to hack their body. So I had an electrician that just wanted to be a better electrician because he has to contort his body into weird places. And he goes, I hurt and I I can't work if I hurt. So I think it's fascinating to see the evolution of, of, of people gaining knowledge. We do. We have, we've had patients uh, just regular fitness uh, enthusiasts that have come to the course. And, yeah. and we've tried to uh, dumb it down, so to speak, as much as possible uh, yeah. because we, we understand there's a lot of stuff or perspectives that may be uh, not accepted in the industry, so to speak. Uh, yeah. And some of it we know is – is is really kind of deep on a on a on a lot of levels, but we don't want to make it complicated. So we try to make it so that it's it, anybody off the street who just wants to move better, feel better, can at least come out of that course and go, okay, I get it. I, at least I get most of it. You know, I, I'm I'm going to have more information, and my arsenal is is increased on how I understand how I move and and what the things that I need to to do. So I, we'd like to see courses start getting to that mindset of trying not to overcomplicate the information so that way we don't leave people behind. And it's only going to benefit anybody teaching a course. Yeah, I'm definitely faulted for overcomplicating. I throw in a lot of research and I, I'm learning to kind of temper how you know uh, concepts and information is delivered so then it's probably more palatable to more people 
that we speak to. But I think, you know, knowledge is, is super important. And, um, and I just, you know, I can't stress enough that we all deserve the opportunity to learn more. Well, thank you very much, Steve. We appreciate it. Uh, Neil, any last thoughts or questions? No, man. Uh, thanks for your time again. And, um, yeah, I learned a lot. I wanted, uh, so this is what I get a lot when I do these interviews, but I want to get it from you guys. I'm going to put you guys on the spot. You guys uh -oh. cool? Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, so I read probably too much. And lately I've been getting into some uh, psychosocial aspects of movement and looking at, you know, fear and the influence of fear on how we move and things like that. So I'm reading this book called The Art of Fear. I, I want to know, Neil, what are you reading now? And Dennis, what are you reading? And, and why is it significant? I want to get it. So I just read a book. It was called, it's called um, Shackleton's Way. It's a, it's a book on um, this guy named Ernest Shackleton. And, um, you know, he led all these explorations in like the early 1900s. And a client recommended it to me, and it's basically on leadership, but it was his leadership style. These guys got stuck in the in the Antarctic, and his, his boat got stuck in ice. And he had this crew, and he had to figure out how to make his crew survive, um, not just survive physically, but mentally. Yeah. And the way he was able to keep them engaged through you know two years of struggle, um, and then everyone came out of it fairly healthy and happy, which is pretty amazing. So it's, it's a cool story. I love those. Those are the ones that are like the, the nuance of, of communication, uh, learning from people that are put in that type of environment uh, can really arm you with some cool, you know, methods to be able to better communicate and motivate people we work with. So I love yeah. that. Yeah. So, it talked about how he had to adapt to all the different personality styles. You know, some people are a little more fearful and anxious. So he would, he would change his personality a little bit to adapt to them or, you know, kind of what you have to do uh, in class, right? When you're talking to your students. That's cool. Dennis? Yeah. Uh, I'm reading. I don't hear anything to do with the penguins. So no book on <laughs> I, I just pop in the Stanley Cup DVDs. That's all anytime I want, especially now. I just replay those. Uh, <laughs> Dennis can't read. <laughs> I do audible books. <laughs> I do audible books. Um, the Body Keeps Score uh, by Dr. Ooh. Vando Coke. Um, yeah. And what's interesting is because a lot of, I, I know a lot of fitness people would be like, why the hell do I need that? And it, it is significant because all injuries are trauma. Uh, even if something is significant and it's kind of funny when you think about it, when you mention a paper cut to, some, to a human being, everybody goes, they know exactly what that feels like. They, they, that's emblazoned in their memory. Uh, yeah. So think about how much that of an impact something is insignificant that we would consider insignificant has on the brain. And now think about injuries that are much more significant or events in your life that are much more significant. And that leaves much bigger imprints on the brain. And whether it's subconscious or conscious, what those events and how they impact your movement. And, and that's something that I've that I've been able to start to grasp out of this book is everything and anything uh, really affects your mindset. And if, when your mindset is impacted, the way you train is massively uh, affected by that. And so sure. it's it's a good book. Um, 
And so that's something I, it's a book that I would definitely recommend for, for anybody, but especially for, for coaches. Absolutely. Um, I, I've been all over that one. Can't, can't agree anymore. Uh, it's, it was so impactful. I just watched a documentary yesterday. Um, it's a YouTube documentary and it was called Heal, uh, H-E-A-L. Um, very interesting conversation about embodied cognition, which is basically saying the same thing as that, you know, we think, but we think within the body that it resides in. And so whatever the, our thoughts uh, provide has, has an effect on our body, uh, including our health and wellness. And so it was really well done. It's like an hour and a half. I've got great um, uh, interviews with people like Bruce Lipton. If you haven't heard of Bruce Lipton, really great information. So um, I didn't want to, you know, dive deeper into another rabbit hole, but uh, those are two good resources and books. Cause you know, I definitely, I'm, I'm a little bit of, of two things. I like to read on my Kindle but I also like to listen to audiobooks, so I'm a little bit of between the two of you. I'm the same way there. I like to I like to listen. Like I'll go walk or I'll run and I'll listen to a book. Yeah. And then at nighttime I'll read on my Kindle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, guys. Um I, I I'm always honored to be able to be interviewed. Uh, I, I don't know if anything that I gave um, made sense, but I things came out of my mouth and uh we accomplished that goal at least. So I appreciate you guys. Oh, we appreciate you, brother. Uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, no, you just, you gave us a lot of the listeners, a lot of information. You gave Neil and I a lot of information. Uh, so we, we really appreciate that. And uh, we look forward to definitely having you back on. So you're definitely on the list of, of guests that we'd like to have repeatedly because we're going to keep evolving. We're going to keep learning new information and we want to keep passing that on to the people that are willing to listen to this podcast and listen to us jabber on about, uh, about things that uh, we, we feel is are necessary to be put out there. So we appreciate that brother. Appreciate it. Happy to be involved. So just reach out to me, but uh, again, you guys stay safe and look forward to talking to you soon. You too, brother. Peace. Appreciate it.